If you will, open your Bibles once again to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, The Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. We'll begin our reading in just a moment in verse 29. Again, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. We'll be reading all the way into chapter 22 uh, 22, uh, through verse 6. And so we're going to complete a section uh, within our larger exposition, uh, long-time, long-term study uh, in the Gospel of Luke. And I would really want to emphasize, we will never, if we spent from now until the day Jesus returns studying the Gospel of Luke, we would never exhaust all of its richness, okay? And, and so, uh, uh, but we are moving through the book, completing uh, this section. I've, I've used the term Olivet. Discourse uh, that began at the beginning of chapter 21. We find it in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. We find it in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Jesus' uh, longest discourse related uh, to to future uh, things. And it is here, and it takes its name from the mere fact that upon uh, leaving uh, the temple, uh, probably on a Tuesday evening, uh, the disciples make the remark of the, uh, the stunning uh, beauty, the impressiveness of that temple that stood on the Temple Mount uh, there in uh, Jerusalem. It was a, a magisterial uh, achievement. And uh, Jesus takes that opportunity once they get settled upon the Mount of Olives to break the news that soon that temple and uh, the city in which the temple uh, resides will be destroyed. That it will be leveled completely. And we've emphasized that in 70 A.D., approximately 40 years after Jesus spoke of these things, that is exactly what happened. Uh, The Roman general uh, Titus laid siege uh, to the city, and it was destroyed, ending that old covenant age and you could even say it ended sooner but that was the sign definitively there is no more temple there is no more sacrifice it has all been accomplished in the finished in the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ and there is a judgment upon those who persist in their rebellion against him against his truth against his accomplishment and so today we, we will complete our thoughts as well as some, some application I think is still pertinent to us uh, today. Uh, and then we will take the opportunity to do what Luke does and uh, introduce us, kind of give us some foreshadowing as to how this final week in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to play out. And so we're going to look today uh, kind of finally at moving from uh, the controversies that Jesus really did nothing to calm or quell in the first part of that final week that he spoke pointedly and truthfully to those religious leaders inflaming, inciting uh, their animosity toward them and animosity that would result in his crucifixion again according to the plan of God so that redemption, so that the the gospel would be accomplished and applied. And so uh, we'll move through those things from the uh, consternation or uh, of the controversies of the earlier week and see finally today this conspiracy that uh, 
will ultimately be that which places Jesus on the cross where his blood will be shed for our salvation. So uh, let's read together, beginning in verse 29. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. And now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priest and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. So pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for the great privilege of gathering as your people, gathering in your name, gathering to worship you, gathering to hear your word. I pray that today your spirit would be at work, that I would have the ability to speak your truth, your people would have the ability to understand that your word would accomplish that which you have promised it would do. We believe that your word is sure, it is certain, and it is sufficient to do that which you will. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you've missed the previous two sermons from chapter 21 of the Gospel of Luke, uh, you may go back and find them on our, our uh, media, on our website, and Facebook pages, and things like that. If you have any problem, you can contact Pastor Drew. Uh, I'll just remind you uh, that Jesus has uh, spoken of the coming destruction, uh, the judgment from God upon uh, the city, the nation of uh, the Jews there at Israel and Jerusalem. It would be typified, symbolized, and really in some sense consummated with the, the destruction of the temple. The discussion we got into last week is did Jesus uh, speak only to things that happened, they're fulfilled, they're done, they're over with, they were completely fulfilled in 70 A.D.? Or does he have in mind uh, events that are going to occur both in 70 A.D. and will establish something of a pattern or a foreshadowing of things that are going to happen later in the course of history that shall happen just prior to his return? As I've said, I, I hope with the appropriate humility 
and also the appropriate confidence. I've said that I think that he is speaking uh, to two issues separated uh, by about 2,000 years of, of church history. That indeed he speaks to 70 A.D., but he also speaks to things that we are yet to see ultimately uh, fulfilled. And so we made our case last week, and so we're going to press uh, forward uh, today as we begin in verse 29 with what I call uh, the illustration of eminence, the illustration of uh, the nearness of that which Jesus speaks. Luke says that he is going to, Jesus is going to speak, he's going to utilize a parable. Now, as a former English teacher, I wouldn't call it a parable, but I don't have, I'm not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and do not speak and follow me as Luke did. So if he says it's a parable, it's a parable, uh, where I would call it maybe an allegory or an illustration or a metaphor. But God said through His Spirit, it's a parable, so it's a parable. So it's the parable of what? The parable of the fig tree. And so Jesus appeals to a phenomenon in nature, a phenomenon in agriculture, of which we're basically familiar. That it is normative in agriculture for trees or garden plants or whatever they are as we move from winter into spring, towards summer, toward the harvest, that there is a process, there is progress that first appears in the budding on the branches that, uh, that develops into a flowering and often in the case of vegetables and fruit a fruition and so he compares that to what was commonly uh, around uh, the city of Jerusalem namely a fig tree that when you see this natural ph phenomenon taking place well you know that summer is approaching and so what he wants to do is not so much talk about uh, the weather and the seasons, and fruit, and all those things, but he wants them to understand that that is in some way analogous to what he has been speaking of. And so in verse 31, he says, so also, in a way that's similar, in a way that we can draw a type of comparison, when you see these things. Now, what's he talking about? What are, what are these things? Well, the things that he has been speaking of... I would say, most notably, uh, going back to uh, verse 25 and these uh, apocalyptic-type signs, when you see these things, and we talked uh, previously, is Jesus speaking metaphorically, illustratively, uh, which would be, again, in step with and kind with the way the Old Testament prophets spoke. We cited some examples of the Old Testament prophets speaking of astronomical phenomenons. And so what they utilized though, that language for is whenever there was an upheaval on earth, it would be symbolized by the language of the upheavals in nature and in heaven. And so uh, we can make the case that uh, these things are used to illustrate, and sometimes they're, they're literal. So I'm not sure what the case is here, uh, but Jesus says when you see uh, these types of upheavals, uh, inclusive of all that he has outlined uh, beginning uh, there at uh, uh, verse 1, then, then know, verse 31 again, when you see these things, the kingdom of God is near. Now, if you'll remember, John the Baptist came on the scene uh, three years or so, five years, whatever it was, previous to uh, Jesus uh, kind of appearing on the scene and beginning his ministry, he called upon the nation to repent for this kingdom 
is at hand. It is near. And Jesus picked up that same theme, preaching the same thing, the necessity of repentance in view of the kingdom. Now, what did they mean by what they said? What is uh, this uh, kingdom? And certainly, uh, much of those to whom Jesus uh, spoke in his day, had some understanding of uh, a great kingdom that would take on the, the, the geopolitical uh, uh, manifestations that, the, that were uh, uh, a part of the, the reign of a king such as David. They expected uh, to get their freedom from the Romans and once again be a player on the world stage. But Jesus has in mind a far different kingdom. And we can speak, now we can rightly speak, that God's kingdom, this kingdom of God, is everything that exists. Because all that is, is because it was created by Almighty God. I'm amazed when I see the, the data from these telescopes that uh, can see whatever it is. Billions and billions and billions and billions of miles out into space. And no matter how far they can see, no matter how large it is, it belongs to God. And it is under His sovereign rule. And so it's, it is right to think of all things as the kingdom of God, but it's also right to think as the kingdom as a peculiar realm of which the Lordship of Christ is recognized and celebrated by the people that have been saved by God's grace and for His peculiar glory. And so uh, the kingdom is going to transition in this life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, from being kind of embedded uh, within geopolitical Israel. All of Israel is not Israel. There was a true Israel. There was a born-again Israel, even under the Old Covenant. It wasn't everybody that circumcised their children. It wasn't everybody that brought sacrifices. It was those that God had saved, anticipating a, a sacrifice that could save, namely the, the Lord Jesus Christ. But this kingdom was a kingdom and is a kingdom that can only be seen through the lens of the new birth. That's why Jesus would tell Nicodemus, except you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And I've told you for years, that means a lot more than just you can't go to heaven when you die if you're not born again. It is the fact that you do not get the realities of king and kingdom until God gives you the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the heart to receive the truth of a crucified king who died on the cross of Calvary for your sins. And so... We say all of that, so what does Jesus mean? Is this kingdom nearness the, a synonym for what we saw in verse 27? Namely, the coming of the Son of Man to consummate His kingdom. Or was it completed or manifested in some other event? Now, we ask the question, where is this kingdom and Jesus has already gone through. Well, it's chapter 17 of the Gospel of Luke. It's not going to come like, like the way you expect a normal kingdom to come. If you could have observed the earth for you know, the 10,000 years of human history and just could watch and kind of see the big picture and then the, the minutia of the pictures, you could begin to say, oh, this king is fixing to rise up. They're, 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 they're building up a military. They're, they're becoming a united people. There's charismatic and dynamic leadership. And, okay, they're, they're fixing to be movers and shakers on the world scene. You could have seen that. 
Jesus is saying it's not going to come like that. It's not going to come in the normative ways you think of kingdoms coming and expanding and conquering. It's going to be a, a silent and a secret kingdom in a sense, like leaven hidden in a loaf. That it's going to be at work and it's going to have its effect and it's going to grow. It's going to be like that mustard seed that is planted as the smallest of the seeds of the garden. But when it comes to fruition, when it grows, it will be the greatest of all kingdoms. Now, one of the things that we're talking about around here, and maybe it unsettles people. It doesn't unsettle me that much. Because I can believe in a dynamic, vital growing kingdom of God that is the greatest of all kingdoms as we speak in this moment. Huh? What? I didn't hear you. Amen. It is the greatest of all kingdoms as we speak here right now. And there is a kingdom that exists that is in a conflict with that kingdom and we see and hear its sabers rattling each and every day. Do we not? It is real. It is present. And so... Those things, I think, will go on until Jesus comes. And so the kingdom that we speak of is coming. I'm not saying it's going to be consummated. That's a different question. But it is coming. It is growing. It is dynamic. It is vital. It is life-changing. It is influencing the world through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only way it grows. You cannot take knife or gun and threaten someone, and coerce them into coming into this kingdom. It is only a supernatural work of God. And you cannot promise kids candy and Ferris wheels and entice them to come into the kingdom of God either, just by the way, okay? That it's only by the work of the Word and the Spirit. Okay, so, so how will we know that this kingdom has drawn near? Well, uh, the world is dramatically transformed prior to Christ's return. Well, that would indicate it. Or we could say the world was catastrophically judged. Uh, certainly, uh, that kingdom was near, if you had the eyes to see it, when Jerusalem and its temple are leveled. And Jesus had already said 40 years before it's going to happen. Well, what does that tell you? The king in his kingdom is near, okay? Because it happened according uh, to his uh, plan. But uh, again, there is a distinction, I think, to be made. And sometimes we speak of the church militant, which is our status now, vibrant in the world, seeking to conquer the world, and the church triumphant uh, the day that Christ returns. And again, the, all of his enemies will fall at his feet, and everyone will bow the knee and confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, I think, again, Jesus, in the course of this whole business that we call the Olivet Discourse, has in view uh, both near things, 70 A.D., and then something that's going to look scarily like the events of 70 A.D., cosmic upheaval, great persecution, great tragedy, and we mentioned last week the appearance of one we'll call the Antichrist. All of these things are going to be going on, and we shall know what? That it is soon that the Lord Jesus Christ shall appear 
And he's, he's, as the angel said, as he departed, visibly, powerfully, in the sky, to perfect, complete, and consummate his kingdom. So, and Jesus, and again, this is one of those tough, tough phrases. Look at verse 33. Jesus himself said, heaven and earth will pass away. Excuse me, let me back up into verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. A lot of discussion. What does he mean by generation? And there is, there is a kind of fluidity to how words are used. Now, typically, biblically and normally, when we use the word generation, it has to do with people born in kind of uh, approximate time frames. Uh, we speak of the greatest generation. We speak of the baby boom generation, of which I'm a, a member. We see, I think it's is it Generation X that comes after the baby. And, and here's what it is. It, it is a way of putting people in a category because they tend to share characteristics. But it's interesting in Luke 16, 8, in this uh, uh, parable of the dishonest manager, Jesus says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation. Now what is he saying? He's, he's taking that word, that typically refers to chronology and biology and kind of, you know, uh, reasonable proximate birth dates and says and use it to, uh, to apply to a group of people that share a characteristic, namely the characteristic of being in opposition to God, okay? And so is Jesus saying this generation will not pass away? Is he saying... Is he speaking about the Jews, that the Jews as an ethnic group will not pass away? Is he saying that the Christians of that generation will not pass away? Is he saying evil people will not pass away? And I think that uh, he is referring to the generation, the group of people alive, at the time that the signs that foreshadow his return are aligned, the, these things that specifically are picked up, I believe there in verse 25, that again emphasize the time is near. They're the buds of the tree. When you see the tree budding, it is time for that return, to be, that, that that return is soon. Again, one of my reasons for saying that is I understand you can say that Jesus came in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. You can say that. I just don't think that completes the entire picture. I don't think that is the way that his return is described in any other place in Scripture, okay? I think he comes visibly, uh, demonstrably, as King of kings, Lord of lords, to raise the dead, to judge evil, and to perfect this kingdom that he's promised, okay? So, know when you start seeing all of these things that the day of Christ's return, the perfection of the kingdom that, again, is among us, and it is great, that day is near. Now, Jesus, again, buttresses his words. Look at verse 33. We think of the earth as somewhat permanent. You know, we think of uh, uh, the earth as firm and foundational and solid. But let me tell you what's firm and more foundational and more central to all things. It is the Word of God. In fact, it is... The powerful word of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only that created all things, it keeps all things being the things that they are. He is absolutely right now upholding the entirety of the cosmos by the power of his word. Okay, And so he says that that 
word, even though heaven and earth pass away, that my word is sure. Now, I may be wrong about what Jesus says, and that's possible. But Jesus will never be wrong, okay? He, we, we, can, we can disagree about what things mean occasionally. Not all the time. We can't do it every day. But occasionally. But what we can agree on, and I've told you, we all agree Jesus is going to return, and he is going to complete that which he promised. And what he has promised is sure and certain that his word does not, will not, shall not, has never, never will return void. It is that which is powerful to create. It is even powerful to create new life in the heart of a dead heart to bring about conversion. Okay? And that's why we preach the word. Okay? So, based on that, we look at this exhortation in view of impending judgment, of imminence, of, of certainty, of consequence. There's an exhortation to faithfulness. Now again, if, if the world is going to be increasingly made better, and in some sense it has, we're, let me tell you something. Western civilization is as ordered as it is. Now, we're trying to disorder it, but it's as ordered as it is because of the influence of Christians beginning as Paul went from what is now modern-day Turkey into Greece, okay? Because he went to Europe and the gospel went west. And we have been influenced by that, okay? All the way through the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, all of these things, our society is ordered from a biblical worldview, okay? So we have been blessed by that but it does seem as i've said before the church is going to be vibrant let me tell you something if when christ returns there's only one king, one christian on the face of the earth one christian is a kingdom a kingdom citizen that survives until he returns that kingdom will still be the most dominant vibrant kingdom on the face of this earth because the power of god that raised jesus from the dead will be residing in that kingdom citizen okay so now so Jesus exhorts us to watch yourself, to, to watch ourselves because we can be overwhelmed by the troubles and the pleasures of this life. One of the things, you know, man, y'all know me. I, man, I can get mad. I, I mean, I see stuff on the news. And I, man, I'm ready, to bite, I'm, I'm ready to bite nails. I mean, I want to fight sometimes. And, and then I get depressed. And I, I think about these precious grandchildren and, and the world they're going to inherit. And I, I just, man, I get. Be anxious for nothing. My anxiety is sin. My fretting over the world is a sin. That, that I should be watchful. I should be concerned. Satan is a roaring lion. He's seeking whom he may devour. I'm to be sober and alert. We're living However, we define the last days, and I believe the last days begin at either the crucifixion or the resurrection or Pentecost, but you know, we've been in the last days for, for 2,000 years. That's my opinion, okay? And the, the days are increasingly evil. They're described by Paul as going from bad to worse. The time is coming. Men will not endure sound doctrine, sound teaching. Now, some of you know this. If I visit you in your home, and, you know, I, I like to look you in the eye. Okay, I'll, I'll do that. But you'll see my eyes kind of... I'm looking around the room. Now, ladies, let me tell you, 
I'm not checking to see if you've dusted that day, and I'm not checking to see if you've stuck something under the couch to hide it. I'm looking to see what books you've got. And it really disturbs me. Not, And I haven't had it happen with anybody in this room in a long, long time. But, but sometimes I see pure old D junk. And I'm not, I'm not even talking about the stupid fiction. I'm talking about what purports to be Christian devotions and all of this stuff that is horrible. It's, it's, misle- it's, it's, it's heresy. Okay? And, and, and so we need, the, the way that we guard against this is we must be wise. And the only way that you can have wisdom is to know the Word of God. And the only way that you can know the Word of God is by studying it. And that, that study can be inclusive of your reading it, that can be inclusive of hearing it preached and taught. And all the very, There's all kinds of ways to study the Word of God. But if you're going to be wise and you're going to be watchful and you're going to be on the, the look in these difficult and dark days, you must have God's wisdom that comes from the knowledge of the Word of God. And we're going to come back to this, as I said, next week. But let me, let me just be as blunt and as simple as I can. You ain't going to amount to much as a believer apart from knowledge of the Word of God. You will be frustrated and you will fail. Okay? So we'll come back to more of that. So we're to live wisely. We're to be people that are waiting, not panicking, not, again, we're not just standing around wringing our hands saying what? I'm just waiting on the rapture. No, that's not us. But we, we wait patiently. We're, we're watching. We're, we're aware. We're awake. We're sober. We're alert. And we work. We take the gospel, believing it's the power of God of sal- to salvation, and that is what gives us hope in this world. And so, why do we do this? Why do we stay awake? Why do we pray to have strength? Because one day we'll stand before the judgment of the Son of Man. Paul says, knowing what it is to fear the Lord, we seek to persuade men. That's what we do. And even as a believer, we we got into this discussion a while back in a Sunday school class about the implications of judgment for the believer. And it's it's kind of a daunting subject. But even as a believer, Paul says, I'm kind of sober about that day. Okay? I'm, I'm living in view of that day. And Jesus encourages us as well to live towards that view or with a view towards that day. And so, Jesus himself, in view of all that he said, be alert, be watchful, be sober, be busy, be knowledgeable in regards to the Word of God. Final thing. As we look down into verse 37, the anticipation of approaching betrayals. Kind of a hinge here, okay? Olivet Discourse is finished. Jesus has made his uh, application. Now Luke wants to kind of set the stage. All of us are familiar with cliffhangers. Whether it's in literature, television, drama, whatever. uh, An episode ends with something like, ah, what's going to happen next? And so... Luke takes time in verse 37 to tell us uh, the context. 
Jesus was teaching in the temple. That's what he was doing that week. He went out to the Mountain of Olives at, at night, and then he came back each morning. That's what was going on. And then he tells us about the conspirators. There's a conspiracy that's going to uh, play out that will lead to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, we understand what? According to God's set purpose and foreknowledge, as Peter preached on Pentecost. So, he's going to the temple. He's teaching the Day of the Passover is approaching, and Luke reminds us. And yes, the religious leaders are still out to get Jesus. And that's terrible. That's terrible. That's bad, but he doesn't stop there. He tells us there in verse 3 that Satan himself, and I'm not going to try to explain exactly how this happens or what the dynamics are, but Judas is the ultimate apostate. He's the ultimate example of one who falls away. And in some sense, he's an antichrist. But he, he under the influence of Satan, and remember this, you all heard me say this so many times before, Judas did exactly what he wanted to do. Okay? He sold his soul for pieces of silver. Okay? And so uh, Satan, he came on under the influence of Satan, having heard the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, having seen the power vested in the Lord Jesus Christ, he remained what? Unconverted. And he would betray the Lord Jesus Christ into the hands of his enemies uh, for a portion of money. And they're so deceitful that they're not even honest and bold enough to do it uh, kind of in public. Uh, they come up with a scheme that they can kind of do it by cover of darkness, out of the sight of the public, and they shall carry out their plan to get Jesus out of the way. And of course, in their getting rid of Jesus, they fulfill God's plan. And here's the thing, and what, what we kind of see by way of overview, judgment is coming both on Jerusalem and on the world. And Jesus is going to be betrayed and he is going to suffer God's judgment for us. And so the judgment described previously is a warning to us. If we would escape the judgment of God, which sounds awful, does it not? It is, it is terrible. Then we must flee to the one who was the substitute who suffered even a greater wrath than what happened in Jerusalem on himself for our salvation. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, pastors get indicted, and like I say, I've been labeled with every label under the sun. But, you know, they're, they're hellfire and brimstone. No, 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 no. Well, let me tell you something. It's part of biblical truth. There's a judgment coming. It involves a place called hell. And it is real. And those who persist in their rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ, against the one who is the sovereign Lord of all creation. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But he's also the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And he came and went through all of this to go to the cross, to die in our place, to be raised from the dead, to perfect, to complete, to consummate a kingdom of people that God saves by his grace, and for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your truth, uh, truth that is powerful, 
truth that's not always easy to understand, but it is the truth by which we are saved. And so, Lord, I pray that you would take this truth and apply it to our hearts. Uh, that for those of us that know you, we would know you more completely, more perfectly, that we would obey you more completely and perfectly, that we would love you uh, with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And Lord, if there are those here that remain in their unbelief, that this would be the day that you would so work in their hearts and their minds that they would believe your gospel and be saved. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.